You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. of Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. Ed Ludlow, he's off. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, as Apple's smartwatch ban, it looms. The White House is tracking the case with the potential to overrule the import halt decision. We'll break down the latest from Washington. Plus, ByteDance sales reportedly surged this year to more than $110 billion, potentially overtaking competitor Tencent. We'll break down what it says about the state of TikTok's e-commerce business. And we'll discuss how hot or not the private secretary market is while startup employees and investors, they seek to sell shares of their red hot companies. But first, let's check in on these markets because still relatively hot when you're looking at the Nasdaq. We're still managing to push up about a quarter of a percentage point. In fact, Nasdaq 100 at another record high. Bond markets, they're also managing to rally. The everything rally is back upon us. We're still feeling that some of the economic data is coming in strong, that consumer confidence building. And indeed, maybe the macro picture means that we'll be able to tame some of that interest rate hikes and indeed some interest rate cuts coming some 2024. Just think about what's happening over in the UK. Great British pound actually sinking as that inflation data shows two there. We're seeing cooling in inflation. Look at what's happening on the individual movers and case-by-case basis. I'm looking at number one. China didn't see the moon music of buying that we've seen currently here in the United States. And the Nasdaq Golden Dragon just on the downside by 1.2%. This is that we see maybe some of the big e-commerce players feel the pain coming from one particular bike dance. We'll dig into that in a little bit later. I'm also looking at what's happening with Alphabet, though, of course, Google. We're going to be digging into what really the changes at Google Play Store are going to be. Not much, it would seem, in terms of a business model impact. So the investor base likes that. And I'm also looking at what's happening with Apple because this is the key story upon us. Will they indeed see a ban being enacted on the import of their watches? What does that mean? And how much at the moment is the Biden administration currently tracking the impending U.S. ban? We understand they are of nearly all Apple watch sales. They're due to, of course, all surrounding a patent dispute with the power to veto the decision resting with the U.S. trade representative. Now, we discussed this with the CEO of Massimo. Of course, this is the company that is currently feeling that its patents are being infringed. And the CEO there told us that, look, thus far, the administration has been in touch. Take a listen. So I don't expect the administration to step in here. And every time Apple contacts them, 
I guess by law, they have to call us to get our response. So yes, we've been in contact with them and we don't think they will intervene. Um, I think their recent stunt to pull the products off the market a few days earlier than the ITC decided it should be pulled off the market. They're trying to get the public to force the Biden administration to do something they don't think they should do, but I don't think it's going to work. I'm pleased to say Bloomberg's Linda, who really helps drive the coverage for the team here in New York at Technology, joins us. Remind us, go back to basics. We're thinking that some sort of import ban will be enacted because, well, Massimo thinks his patent's being infringed here. Well, first, Caroline, thank you for having me. It's nice to be with you. Uh, so this all stems from this big International Trade Commission case in which the agency ruled that Apple had violated two very important health technology patents in developing some of its most recent Apple Watch series. And as a part of that ruling, they imposed not only a U.S. ban on the equipment that Apple needs to assemble its watches here in the U.S., but also an injunction that will essentially block Apple from directly selling those series of Apple Watches here in the U.S. And as you noted, we're counting down the days to that actual ban. I mean, we're talking about like right after Christmas that that ban takes effect. And, you know, as the CEO of Massimo just uh, characterized as a stunt, Apple is deciding to sort of wind down the sales ahead of that end of Christmas Day injunction. And of course, a key selling time, a key issue when you think about what's over in the UK, a Boxing Day sale, the idea that everyone goes out and starts purchasing like they do after Thanksgiving here in the right. US. What, what therefore here in the US does it mean when a fix could or could not be enacted? Because Massimo, the CEO, was saying that he didn't think this could be some sort of software update, ultimately. Yeah, I mean, he was saying that it would have to be a hardware change, right? He was telling us that for days. And uh, if a fix cannot be enacted, if there is no deal that is reached between Apple and Massimo, if the White House doesn't step in because it has had almost two months to decide on a veto, then you do see the sales directly from Apple affected. Now, one thing that I wanted to clarify, you said all Apple watches will stop in sales. That's not necessarily the case. That is Apple's direct sales from its mm -hmm. own retail stores. So I just want to point out that you can still go get your Apple Watches at Best Buys, at Walmarts, not to give them any, you know, uh, free any marketing, free marketing, yeah. but they have said, these other third-party retailers have said, we will continue selling these watches. What remains a question is what happens if the inventories at these yeah. third-party box retail shops end up drawing down? Where did they get the rest of it? Can they still bring in those devices from Asia or other manufacturing centers by Apple and keep those sales going for Apple like we don't we don't know and I wonder whether it kickstarts some sort of rush yeah well I'm just I was saying the other day that I'm glad that I got my Apple watch before that we have been checking we've sent reporters out to Apple stores to see if there has been a rush no rush yet but you never know okay yeah, see. <laughs> not that on the ground reporting on <laughs> there also no marketing for Apple here but just the odd the odd perspective on where on indeed if you can still purchase it let's just continue the antitrust side of all of this and ultimately what it means for patents in the longer term. Let's bring in Nicholas Matic. He's principal at McCool Smith's intellectual property practice. And how often have you seen this sort of tactic being used, Nicholas, really with Apple sort of getting ahead of an ultimate potential ban and trying to force consumers, perhaps, hand here? 
They've actually been very rare in recent years, primarily because injunctions or exclusionary relief like a ban on importation have been pretty rare in patent litigation since uh, Supreme Court decision in about 2006. So there just haven't been occasions where uh, a major player like Apple would uh, frequently face this kind of situation. Of course, we were just debating as to whether the U.S. Trade Representative or indeed the administration would in any way step in here overall. Just give us your perspective on what the pros of doing that and what the cons are of ultimately a government weighed in here. Well, I mean, the pros are obviously people like Apple Watches, and it would be a politically popular decision. The cons are that it, it doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't promote innovation in the U.S. because the, that's why patent rights are important, and a company like Massimo uh, is entitled to either license its patents to Apple uh, on, you know, the terms that they think are appropriate, or to, you know, use their exclusivity from the technology they developed to, you know, uh, gain market share. And if Apple, you know, the, if Apple doesn't want to do a deal with them or come up with its own solution to the technical problems Massimo solved, then, uh, you know, then Apple's going to face a ban like this or at least have to offer products that don't have this feature. We were speaking with the CEO of Massimo this time yesterday and his points were clear. He felt that his chief technology officer, his chief medical officer had been lured over to Apple. There was nothing he could have done in terms of paying it even further. They just had the resources that couldn't be matched by a smaller company such as Massimo. And I'm interested as to the other clients that you serve, the conversations you have. How much is this sort of behavior happening if indeed it is exactly what occurred? So I hear that that kind of story all the time from clients uh, of a large technology company taking you know their intellectual property via trade secrets or patents, and then you know using their other market advantages to to beat the the smaller guy. Patents are fundamentally a tool of small companies, and that's and we need them to incentivize small companies to invent the next technology because small companies are where the groundbreaking innovation uh, tends to occur and. Uh, if the bigger guys, they're always going to win if uh, they're allowed to copy because they have, you know, the pre-existing, uh, you know, market advantages. They've got a well-known brand, the consumer base, distribution channels, and the, what the small guys have is their innovative technology. And so that's that's why it's so important for, uh, you know, to, to be able to enforce intellectual property rights the way Massimo is. To that end, do you anticipate that? I mean, if you were to put probabilities on it, some sort of deal will ultimately be reached here. Massimo has been spending millions, yes, to ultimately potentially prove a point here and to fight for the smaller companies, but also because it thinks it could win a lucrative deal ultimately. Well, no, I mean, I, I don't know what Massimo's business objectives are. They have said they're willing to do a license. The, you know, the, the question is always at what price, um, and is it a price that they're willing to take and Apple's willing to pay? Um, you know, and it also probably turns uh, a lot on what happens on the 25th or the 26th when the president has to issue his decision. ITC uh, vetoes are extremely rare. In fact, I think there's only been one in history now. Apple was the beneficiary of that one veto, so it may be feeling a little bit of invincibility here um, because it has such a well-known brand and such political clout. But uh, we'll we'll have to see what happens, and if the if the if the president doesn't veto it, that may bring Apple to the table. Nicholas, it's great to get your expertise. Thank you for spending some time with us, Nicholas Message of McCool Smith.
TikTok owner ByteDance saw sales surge in 2023 to over $110 billion. Now, that's all according to people familiar with the matter. That would put the company ahead of rivals like Tencent. And of course, it says ByteDance is seeking to expand, particularly in the area of e-commerce. For more, let's bring in Bloomberg's Henry Wren joining us from London. And Henry, when you're looking at what the driving force of this sales pickup, I mean, it is phenomenal percentage point growth here. Is it at the expense of market competition? So um, as we, uh, our Asian colleagues uh, broke this story, so as you said, so ByteDance, its revenue is on track to exceed 110 billion US dollars. And its growth driver really comes from e-commerce, as you mentioned. It's not just overseas, but also at home. So at home, it's expanding rapidly into areas such as uh, helping people to book restaurant tables, helping people to book restaurant takeouts, but also selling clothes online, but also overseas. For example, just earlier this month, it bought uh, Indonesia's Tokopedia, which is one of the major e-commerce platforms in Indonesia. And remember, Indonesia is one of the biggest e-commerce markets in Southeast Asia. So as you said, it's expanding rapidly overseas in e-commerce offering, but also at home as well. But yeah. it can be at cost of some other competitors. For example, Meituan, another food delivery uh, platform in China, but also Alibaba, which is um, at, which is under pressure by not only PDD, but also ByteDance in e-commerce offerings front. Talking about pressure, we're seeing it managing to scale at home despite a weakening economy. We're seeing it particularly showing strength in e-commerce now having done that one and a half billion dollar deal in Indonesia. But here in the US, there is still some political anxiety. Are we likely to see that continue into 2024? Exactly, especially when you think of 2024, it's an election year. And the climax was really in March this year, right? So when you remember um, the TikTok CEO, Sho Chu, appeared in Congress, testified before Congress when some lawmakers threatened to ban this app completely in the US. And I would want to point out that the regulatory pressure is not just in the US, because when you look at India, which is another big country, and remember this year, India surpassed China as the most populous country the world, the TikTok app is actually banned in India. And there's no promise that those regulatory pressure won't rise in China as well, because what we've been seeing, Chinese government has been cracking down severely on platform companies domestically as well. So as you said, regulatory pressures could be coming, but also on multiple fronts. But for now, it seems as though the growth is still about 30% year over year. So revenue really managing to rise up amid some of that pushback here in the US. Henry Wren, great to catch up with you as always thank you so much meanwhile let's stick with bite dance and ultimately how we're seeing brands companies really launch themselves in popularity using the power of influence jacob cook's with us wpic marketing technologies co-founder and ceo you are staying up late friend over there in china and i'm interested jacob ultimately the sort of sales growth that you hear reporting of 30 percent year on year is that what you are seeing bear out with your own data you know, domestically, we're seeing it in line or actually even a little bit higher with what we've we're not surprised by that number at all. Uh, we would have actually seen it coming in mid 30s, maybe 36, 37. Hmm. Um, it really is, you know, the platform of the younger generation as we're seeing these consumers, you know, really the Gen Z really come into their own right now. This is what they're using to shop. And it's, um, you know, it's an interesting transition. It's happened very quickly. Um, and we're pretty excited about it. You know, um, everything that, that was in the Bloomberg article and has been released today is, is right in line, if not low, 
quite frankly, from what we've seen on the ground over here. And talking of what you see on the ground and do on the ground, you're basically helping perhaps Western companies, brands access Asian buyers, whether or not it's in China, Japan, South Korea. How much are they leading with being on Doyen, being on these sorts of e-commerce and meets content platforms at the moment? Yeah, the brands that we're dealing with in China, certainly, you know, it, this isn't new. This has been going on for a couple of years now. Um, they're definitely benefiting a lot from these growth numbers. And, you know, when we talk about, you know, you mentioned before about, you know, we can consumer over here. We really look at different categories, right? So that, you know, large durables and things like that that have shown weakness, Douyin's really not exposed to. Um, so what they're seeing, you know, fashion, health and wellness and these other categories that, you know, the younger consumers are really engaging with, um, you know, ByteDance is, is really well positioned for that. So these growth numbers that we're seeing coming out today, again, right in line with what we're expecting. And, you know, next year, I think we're going to see this again, if not better. What sort of ROI is a, a brand getting when they invest in putting content on the platform, but also selling via it? Because, well, they must have to pay an upfront fee to certain influencers they work with, for example? Yeah, it's definitely a different model for ByteDance. Um, ByteDance has a really easy platform and a back end to engage with influencers. Now, you know, there's a lot of them out there, but they can be charging, you know, 30, 40, 50% commissions, which isn't unheard of. We go back to sort of what, you know, the big influencers were doing on Tmall a couple of years ago as well, or Taobao Live. It was about the same rates. Now, ByteDance is getting a much larger percentage of that, which, you know, leads us to believe they're in a much better financial shape. But, you know, brands are willing to pay that because, again, you can put your product or service, and again, restaurants, dental cleaning, you name it, in front of millions of people very, very quickly. And you've got to have a little bit of faith in your product, too, that, you know, that second or third purchase, they're going to come back to the brand directly. We are not going to have to pay that fee. So, again, it doesn't work for large durables, which are one-offs, but it does work for cosmetics, nutraceuticals, athleisure, and things that can be repeated again and again and again. So we're seeing, you know, brands do very, very well um, that are engaging in that model here. Always great, Jacob, to stay up with you, for you to give us your time when it's late. And we need to get your on-the-ground expertise as well, Jacob Cook of WPIC. Stay well. Meanwhile, coming up, we've got some breaking news for you. This is as the FTC, we understand, of course, the Federal Trade Commission, is proposing changes to children's online privacy protection rules. They're saying that they're going to place new restrictions on the use and disclosure thereof of children's personal information. This is according to a statement coming from the FTC. Of course, this is as we see ongoing concern about, well, the access of data and children's interpretation and use of some of these social media companies and, well, more, us more broadly, the internet. Let's talk a little bit about, well, where else we're seeing some changes. Alphabet's agreement, for example, to end abuse of market power on its Google Play Store may come with a catch. We're going to delve more into that in a moment. Meanwhile, let's just check in on the shares of Zoom today. That Wells Fargo securities analyst Michael Turin, he's out with a recommendation to cut, ultimately, the price target on Zoom. He's also saying go underweight from equal weight. We're seeing a price target now $70, currently trading at $71.48. We're off by 1.3%. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. 
Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. now for Talking Tech. First up, well, the FTC's been busy. The Federal Trade Commission on this part is also saying that Rite Aid must stop using facial recognition for surveillance. According to the FTC, Rite Aid's system generated thousands of false matches, often involving race, and without notifying customers. Rite Aid can't use the system for the next five years, which was to be allegedly spotting shoplifters. Meanwhile, Chinese internet company Alibaba is in the midst of an executive shake-up, replacing commerce chief Trudy Dai after a roughly 20-year stint. Now, Dai will instead help set up a holding firm for managing some of Alibaba's global assets. Plus, claims on bankrupt crypto exchange FTX are soaring, trading at 57 to 73 cents on the dollar, depending on the size. And this is according to data from Cherokee Acquisition. Still unclear whether distributions will actually be made or how much customers and creditors will ultimately receive. Meanwhile, let's talk about, well, a rather little amount the customers are going to be receiving from the Alphabet case. The 700 million deal, of course, was agreed to alter its Google Play app store. And many are now pointing out some of the loopholes around developers' service fees. Let's get more context. Bloomberg News reporter Malti Nayak is here. And before we get into the fact that a consumer in this case would get about $2 potentially in back from Google from the $700 million settlement, but ultimately what people are nitpicking here is the fact that they're probably not going to have to change their business model all that much, the amount that they charge a developer. That's right. So Google has made a concession here with this deal where they are going to allow developers to um, give users access to alternate payment options, like they could use PayPal or anything else, have their own billing system instead of going through the Google Pay billing, Google Play billing system. But, uh, you know, they should previously charge 30 percent. Now they're offering a discount of 4 percent uh, to, you know, at 26 percent. Uh, a developer still paying a hefty service fee, and I'm not sure whether you know the four percent discount will actually sort of go down to a consumer, where it'll actually benefit a consumer. So there have been um, some folks who've been sort of watching what Google has been doing over the years with its Google Play uh, policies, and it seems like they are um, um, concerned that this 
settlement doesn't go far enough to really yeah. benefit developers and consumers. For example, Epic, which actually just won against Alphabet last week in court, in particular, Corey Wright, the VP of Public Policy, is saying ultimately this, this doesn't in any way help consumers in terms of overpaying. So will we see any change to the business model if it's not forced by the courts? So I think it will be interesting to see what will happen in court because Epic won a case against Google Play's policies, which they challenged on antitrust grounds. And next year, the judge is going to actually think about how Google Play policy should be revamped. You know, should there be this standard, uh, you know, 30% commission fee, or you know, at a even at a 4% discount? Uh, you know, should developers have to pay Google this service fee? And and yeah. Google, in its defense, says, you know, we have to keep our Android system going. We got to invest in it, so we got to charge the fee. Multi. So we'll have to see what happens in court next year. Thank you so much, Maltinak, who's been all over these court rulings. Coming up, we'll get a read on liquidity in the private markets with Oceanic. Stick with us. This is Bloomberg Technology. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. Let's get a quick check on these markets because we're managing to power and hire. Maybe it's still this optimism that we'll start to see rate cuts as soon as March of next year. Federal Reserve Bank Philadelphia President, that's Patrick Harker, actually making some headlines as we currently speak. This all on the back of whether or not we will indeed see a need to pull back in terms of the rate hiking cycle. Harker saying you don't need to raise rates anymore. You should hold steady. We're currently up three-tenths percent on the Nasdaq. We're seeing bonds managing to rally on the back of hopes that we'll see consumer optimism as it currently hits a high today also be fed into the fact that we can get some sort of soft landing here in the US. Remember there's a 20 year auction a little bit later. Bitcoin actually getting a bit of a bid as well. We're up 3.3% having been sold off a little bit of late. It's getting crazy out there and of course it's not just Bitcoin doing well. The altcoins are back. Doc Whoop with hat, as it's called. Yep, a dog pictured with wearing a hat. Seems to be doing particularly well at the moment. But so too is the Nasdaq, more broadly. Look at that, 54%, let's call it, year-to-date in a rally. And today we're once again at a new record high for the big tech benchmark. But what does the public market feed into the private market at the moment? How much are we seeing valuations still under pressure or indeed rallying on higher? Let's focus in on that secondary market now and whether it's a good time to buy into some of the hottest startups such as OpenAI, SpaceX, amid those tender offers from employees. Joining us now is an expert, Tim Sullivan, Oceanic Partners CEO. Oceanic, you're a venture capital company, you're an advisory firm, and you really focus on ensuring liquidity is there within the investments that you make in the private markets. And ultimately, Tim, are we seeing decent liquidity for some of these hottest names? We definitely are seeing liquidity coming back. Um, I would say in some of the names like OpenAI and and. Uh, AI in general, those cap tables are pretty small, and so there is not a, a, a lot of liquidity. But in most of the other big names that are transferable, uh, we are seeing liquidity coming back, and we are seeing pricing at much lower levels than we've seen it over the past two years. And so is that why there's now this anticipation of rates coming down, risk tolerance coming back, and wanting to buy in at these cheaper prices? Who are the sort of people putting in those bets at the moment, Tim? Yeah, I think to some degree, you know, risk is, is coming back on. And uh, at the same time, a lot of the shareholders that have been waiting for liquidity for the past few years, waiting for the markets to rebound, are, are somewhat running out of air. You know, they, they need liquidity without companies going public. Uh, individuals literally, you know, they need capitals to survive for 
renovations, for taxes, for mortgage rates going up, for emergencies, et cetera. And so at, at some point, they are going to start looking for liquidity. And the reality is that the buyers who have been primarily institutional for the past couple of years, uh, they have not moved their, their bids. They have remained low based on fundamentals, and sellers are now coming down to, to bridge that gap. Those sellers primarily being employees, are we seeing any early investors wanting to liquidate as well, needing to perhaps satisfy some LP demands? Absolutely. There are plenty of early investors that are looking for liquidity. Uh, you know, no one knows how long this uh, current situation is going to last. You know, is it irrational exuberance that we're experiencing right now? Will we see the rate cuts next year? And will that have a material difference in the, in the markets? Uh, it's hard to say. And some people can wait for another two to five years and other people can't. I don't want to ask you to pick a favorite child, but are there names that you're seeing time and time again being analyzed, being bought up, and are they the ones that we're still talking about IPOing in the near future? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, there's, there's rumors uh, moving around right now that Open.ai may do a raise or, or an IPO in first quarter next year just to beat out uh, XAI. Um, you know, there's companies like Databricks and, and SpaceX that have been pretty resilient throughout this meltdown. And they, you know, who knows? I, I think, you know, if the market conditions are appropriate, we'll move their IPOs up. I'm not, not sure about SpaceX. They're probably a few years out. But, but companies like Databricks and Stripe and some others may, may be sooner than you think. There's always been this hope for democratization, Tim. The idea we saw Kathy Wood with ARC offering up this sort of VC ETF, allowing normal people be able to have access to some of these pre-IPO names. Are we seeing syndicates come in? Are you seeing sort of angel teams coming in to buy in on this stock and allow, still allowed investors, but perhaps not people with billions under management? Uh, we are, and I have mixed feelings about that. I think without legitimate information without Qs and, and Ks being filed. Regular, normal people, as you call them, are not equipped to do the diligence necessarily to, necessary to invest in, in these names. There is a lot of risk and a lot of downside. Um, so it's, it's not for the faint of heart. If you have access to information, either directly or indirectly, I think do your work and, and make the most educated decision that you can. But if you don't have access, it may be best to stay away. Tim, can I ask, therefore, some of the institutions that you say have stood firm, still standing, wanting to take a bid, but wanting it to be a lower valuation, are they all U.S. institutions largely, or are we getting foreign buyers coming in? We are definitely getting more and more foreign buyers in, but by and large, it's, it's still a U.S. market. Hmm. And I'm interested as to ultimately whether you do think the IPO market's going to pick up. You were just talking about whether there's rumors indeed swirling of, of an early initial public offering, even from an open AI. But there has been this drumbeat that we'll start to see more names come in 2024. Is that likely to happen? Will the exits be there? I, I, I look at it from two different perspectives. Number one, I think if the market does come back and, and irrational exuberance wins the day, then absolutely we'll see IPOs in 2024, you know, maybe as, as soon as late Q1. Uh, however, I see things like inflation and unemployment and CPI and real macro factors that have not changed as much as maybe they need to to, to support that ongoing uh, next phase of the market. And if if 
you know, the irrational exuberance fades. I, I think we're out into late 2024, early 2025. We have, of course, heard OpenAI, SpaceX, tender offers and, and boosting their valuations. How rare has that been? That has been uh, extremely rare. And I think, uh, I hate to say it, but a lot of the valuation talk around those specific companies is, is driven in the media. You know, I don't know that the numbers still support those valuations. Uh, those are a couple of companies where the valuations are not based on fundamentals. And at some point, I'm sure they can grow into those valuations, but uh, most of the companies out there today are trading more along the lines of fundamentals. And, and when I say that, they're trading at discounts of 50 to 70 plus percent of where they were trading in late 2021. Wow. And is there any sort of, well, great themes we can see as to whether it's the fintech space that's taken the most hit, whether it's the companies exposed to a consumer, or really is it just across the board, you've generally seen a clip or a lower of 50 to 70 percent? It's, it's absolutely across the board, uh, with, as I mentioned, a couple of exceptions. Tim, it's great to catch up with you. Thank you so much. Thank for you, Caroline. Tim My pleasure. Sullivan, Oceanic Partners CEO, is going to be busy in 2024. Meanwhile, coming up, look, Telefonica shares over in Spain surging after the government announced plans to take a 10% stake. We'll have the details next. Meanwhile, let's just take a look at Tesla. We're seeing actually, we'll talk of maybe managers being told that some salaried employees aren't going to be being offered merit-based equity awards this year. The company didn't give a reason for the change, but four employees from different departments told Bloomberg that they believe the move is pretty widespread. Workers, look, they still get a modest cost of living increase, they get adjustments to their base salaries, but perhaps some of those stock options just being dialed back a little bit. We're off by six tenths of a percent. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.
Sony's Insomniac Games division has just seen a massive leak as hackers released over 1.3 million files detailing footage, roadmaps for upcoming games, tied particularly with Marvel. For more, let's bring in Bloomberg's Margie Murphy, who joins us now. And for many, you go back to 2014 and Sony Pictures. This is a games division of Sony. And what sort of details are being leaked here, Margie? Yeah, so as you say, 1.3 million files. It was a really big leak. Uh, we we can see employees' personal details, which is, is pretty bad. So lots of passports, uh, social security numbers, mm. addresses, um, and lots of HR documents, financial documents about budgets, banking details, wire transfers, and then um, kind of the more sensational stuff, which is the, the, the footage from um, games that are slated to be released in the coming years. So Wolverine, you had a, you can see all the the, the material for all the Marvel um, scenes that are, that are coming up upcoming missions, trainings. Uh, so really a, a, a huge leak for this developer studio. And actually the video game industry has well, been pretty prevalent since 2022, some of the big hacks occurring. I just think what's happened with, with Grand Theft Auto 6 as well getting leaked ahead of its official launch. I'm interested in who's behind this particular attack and what we know about them. Yeah, so this group is called Rysida, and we've known about them since about May of this year. They are a ransomware as a service group, so they will, uh, people will come to them, they will give them a target, and they provide the malware that is used to attack their target, and then they share out the ransom demands um, with, with their affiliates. So. We understand that probably around 25th of November, the, the, the group was able to infiltrate Insomniac. And then um, Rysida would have uh, basically told them, we've stolen all your files, uh, we've encrypted them all, and if you don't give us um, two million worth of Bitcoin, we're going to release them. Uh, and we know that subsequently they sold some of the files on, on, the, on the criminal market uh, and leaked the rest this week. Predominantly, who does Rysida tend to give malware to hack? I mean, is it the gaming industry more broadly or is it cross-industry? So they seem to be targeting, I, I'll call it lower hanging fruit. So they've been going after smaller companies um, and organizations that maybe their, their security isn't as tight. So they went for they. They've hacked Sony essentially, but through a, a kind of subdivision of Sony. And last, uh, their most recent high-profile hack was the British Library. Um, and they target manufacturing. And they've been targeting healthcare and schools as well. So they're, they're, these smaller organizations are normally forgotten by the, the big-time hacking ransomware groups. Um, but they've been, they've been going after these smaller groups and having some success with them. But it means that their extortion demands are normally lower. Hmm. Um, and it normally indicates that the hackers themselves aren't that sophisticated. So the, the malware is, um, it, it can infiltrate um, lesser secured systems, as it were. 
Still, the need for cybersecurity ever-present. Margie Murphy, thank you so much for bringing us that news on Sony. Meanwhile, let's just shift gears a little bit and go to Europe with the Spanish government planning to buy a stake in Telefonica worth as much as $2.2 billion. Look, this is in a bid to safeguard one of the nation's most strategic assets. as Saudi Arabia builds up its own position in the company. Remember, Thomas Seal joins us now from London. And it is interesting that this has been a company that for years is trying to distance itself from the government and now, well, has to go to them a little bit closer. Yeah, it's fascinating. As the government moved out, uh, Middle Eastern governments have moved in on European telecoms. And this isn't the first example. Um, Vodafone, uh, one of the biggest telecom groups in Europe, had a UAE-backed company buy up uh, almost 15% of its shares in the last couple of years. So uh, this is somewhat of a trend. It's a trend. Ultimately, how much are they concerned about foreign ownership more broadly? Is it particular Middle Eastern names that they seem to be pushing back against? And, and ultimately, what's their vindication? What's their reasoning for it? Well, certainly on the second question, telecom firms, you know, they're a bit dry, a bit dull sometimes, <laughs> but they underpin everything we do. And COVID showed that, obviously, we were all dependent on them to do everything. But, but beyond that, defence, government, cables, uh, big business, banking transactions, these are all reliant on, you know, a handful of, the, often in the case of Telefonica, in the case of in the UK, BT, these formerly state-backed companies. And now, you know, the state is stepping in once again. It's also interesting, I mean, other rivals to Telefonica still have government stakes. So it is sort of a return to, to that um, status quo. Deutsche Telekom has a big government stake mm. and Orange in France, formerly France Telecom, has, has a government stake as well. What's interesting, though, of course, is that Telefonica isn't just all about Spain. It's also about Latin America, part of its business there. So what does it mean for well, building businesses abroad? Well... I don't know if the Saudi telecom company, backed by the Saudi government, has um, explicitly gone through its uh, plans, uh, if they have them, for, for Telefonica. But there's a lot of pressure on the telecoms industry generally uh, to maximize the value of assets. It's been a terrible sector for share prices, one of the worst uh, globally. And, and so there's been lots of carve-outs of infrastructure and lots of sales of local units. So possibly the Spanish government is stepping in to make sure it has a voice in those discussions. Telefonica, big player with market capitalization 21 billion over there in Spain. We thank you for bringing us the latest Thomas Seal on all things Telefonica. UK-based fintech firm Revolut. It's on track to generate more than $1.9 billion in revenue for the year. It's actually Europe's most valuable startup, and it's benefiting from rising interest rates across the continent, of course. Revolut is now adding as many as 300,000 users a week, according to people familiar with the matter. However, the startup, which was most recently valued at $33 billion back in 2021 funding round, still has yet to receive its banking license from UK regulators. Meanwhile, we're sticking with fintech. We're talking about perhaps the holiday season within it. We're in full swing. While many of you, including me, shop online, you're also going to be seeing bricks and mortar come into their own. And a New York-based fintech startup is focused on that traditional part of retail. Bonside is a company that's looking to offer passive income to investors willing to bet on traditional bricks and mortar. I'm pleased to say that Neha Govindraj is with us, Bonside founder, CEO, and the passive income play here is, look, come on board, help lend to a company that's growing, and you will get a nice return. Meanwhile, the company, what, doesn't have to sell equity? Is that kind of the win for them? 
That's exactly right. So our intention is to provide a passive income opportunity to investors, and they provide their capital in exchange for a percentage of sales rather than a percentage of the business. And so as a result, they start seeing their repayments from the business in month one versus waiting for a year seven to 10 outcome before they see the returns from their investment. And all of this, I'm sure, is to give more options and optionality to a retail investor who's looking for yield. How much have you had to focus in on ultimately education here? There is a lot of concern about the democratization of finance, meaning basically we all got showered with confetti every time we bought a stock. How have you thought about educating a consumer on this? Education has been incredibly important in what we do. So we actually, we went to market coining our agreement as the repeatable revenue agreement. Mm -hmm. And the intention behind that was we wanted to shape the investor's perspective of what we do versus relying on their existing understanding. And so it gave us a new opportunity to actually educate the investor base and say, hey, this is how we do things. And here's every piece of the fundamental that you need to understand about our agreement before you get involved. As a result, we've kept the product just for accredited investors. um, But we think about that as we expand we can broaden the base. And it's coming in expansion at a time when maybe the moon music around the consumer and the economy gets a little bit better. How have you managed to see companies perform and show resilience? I mean, you're you're lending to really well-known restaurant groups, but then some individual names that might be a a yoga studio, for example, or then a, a store. Which have done well? Has anyone had problems servicing? So we exclusively focus on brick and mortar services businesses. And we define that as food and beverage, as you referenced. Then the second category is wellness. So think medical spas, gyms, salons. And then the third category is more traditional care, either provided in clinics or something like a car wash. Mm -hmm. And our belief, especially coming out of the pandemic, is that brick and mortar services is very much here to stay. And if anything, it's on the rise because we all lived in a world where we weren't experiencing services. And we all decided that's not the world that we want to live in. And so we've seen consistently across our portfolio really strong performance. And and of course, that's aided by the rise in consumer spending that we're seeing as well. I'm looking at sort of Jose Andreas Group. Why did they need to access money from you? Why not go to a normal bank and partner when you're that big a name, that big a player? It's a great question. So we really think about our source of financing, not necessarily for those that are in need of financing. When we look at the brick and mortar services sector, we believe that the capital stack and the options in their capital stack haven't actually innovated in the way that multi-unit retail has really innovated in the last decade. And so when we look at that, we think about what we're providing here at Bondside with our repeatable revenue agreement as expanding their capital stack. And so it's not necessarily meant to replace the equity on your cap table or replace traditional debt that you have in place, but to just give you one more tool in your belt that you can leverage as you think about growth and scale. And so we see businesses as large as Jose Andres Group adopting us as well well as the younger players that are being a lot more sensitive to dilution than they were maybe three to five years ago. What about your cap table? Like you're going out pitching yourself as a fintech business with a technology valuation. How have you raised funds? Has it been hard, easy to tell your story? Yeah, so, you know, I really came at building Bondside out of a personal need. I, prior to building Bondside, built a brick-and-mortar business and felt that we were really underserved in the capital options that existed. Nothing quite fit what I was looking for. And so it, it was very easy to then translate that into a story and, and really sort of paint the picture for the need there. And so as we think about our cap table at Bondside, when we think about our roadmap ahead, our first product is the repeatable revenue agreement, which, you're right, is a financial vehicle. But when we think about the future, there's a lot of opportunity to serve brick and mortars beyond that.
Naya, it's great to have you in the show. Thank you. Thanks, Caroline. Naya Govrindaj there, Bonsai founder, CEO, talking fintech to end what is, of course, this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Do not forget to check out our podcast, though. Get up to speed wherever you listen. Of course, on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, Bloomberg.com, too. This is Bloomberg Technology. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.